Please be seated. And as you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God to Romans chapter 12 as we look at verses 1 and 2 this morning. If you'd like, you can follow along inside of your bulletin. It is the second scripture lesson for today. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's a very brief text because the particular verses, I believe, are very full, very full of meaning and strong. The Apostle Paul has spent 11 chapters outlining, for the most part, the theology of the Christian faith. The fact that all men and women are sinners in need of salvation. The fact that only by faith in Christ can anyone be saved from their sin. He gave an exposition on faith, and then he described the inward life of the believer, principally in chapters 5 through 8. In chapters 9 through 11, he described the relationship with Israel and God's plans for Israel as a nation and as a people. And so we come to chapter 12... And I believe these two verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, will set the pace for the rest of the book. They will set the table for us as we begin to look at our relationships with one another, the practicalities of our relationship to God, our relationship to the civil magistrate, our practice of spiritual gifts, our willingness to love brothers and sisters in Christ when it comes to Christian liberty. Paul will touch on all of these things and more. But he begins with these two very powerful, very well-known verses. Doctrine is never taught in the Bible simply that we may know it. No, it's taught so that it might change us. The practical outworking of Christian doctrine is the ultimate goal of the Lord as we are sanctified and made more and more into the image of Christ. And so Paul approaches these two verses as a beginning point, and I'd like to chew on them a little bit this morning with you as we think of two things. Number one, Paul is going to offer an appeal here, an appeal for personal Worship and wholehearted devotion to Christ. That's verse 1. An appeal for personal worship and a wholehearted devotion to Christ. And then secondly, you'll notice in verse 2, we have an appeal to personal transformation and the discovery of the will of God. An appeal to personal transformation and the discovery of the will of God for our lives. And so with an outline of the message, let's ask the Lord to bless our time of study together this morning in his word. Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and him only. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through the foolishness of the message preached And that your spirit would move on hearts and minds and lives. That you would change every one of us. Lord, bring us into contact with the living Christ if we have never met him. 
And if we have, bring us into greater, more intimate contact that we may grow up to the full measure and stature, which is Christ Jesus. We devote our time to you now in humble reliance upon your spirit. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice that appeal for personal worship and wholehearted devotion to Christ in verse 1. Now, a couple of things about this. Notice the context of the appeal. This entire verse, verse 1, uh, is saturated with worship language. Offer yourselves a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is, he ends the verse, your spiritual service of worship. Now, Paul is not talking about a particular worship experience like we are involved in right now, a public gathering of Christ's church. What he is saying is, is that the Christian life begins and ends with personal worship. Your life, your life is a sacrifice unto God. My life is a sacrifice unto God. And we're to see that we spend our entire lives worshiping and getting to know this God better. See, the Lord is not so much interested in what we do for Him. He's much more interested in who we are for Him. He's much more interested in our character above our service. Because that's how God is ultimately glorified, not so much by what we do, but by what He does through us, as He is pleased to work through holy vessels. And so you see this language of worship. I believe Paul is saying what our Westminster Confession or Shorter Catechism Question 1 teaches, namely, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And that's personal devotion and worship. We're going to be worshiping the Lord throughout eternity. We see parts of that in the book of Revelation. How much more should we spend our lives now in personal, private worship? You say, John, if I'm always involved in personal, private worship, how do I get anything done? You'd be amazed. You'd be amazed. The more you close with God and seek His face, the more you seek to be conformed to the image of Christ, the more the Lord has creative ways of using you in the church and outside of the church to reach others for His glory. But He is glorified whenever you lay yourself out before Him and you say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what the Psalms do. That's what the prophets do. It seems so infantile, doesn't it? Praising the Lord like this. I remember when I was first a Christian, and I kept thinking, what is all this praise the Lord type of thing? What is all this worship stuff? We need to be active in doing things. You know, as a typical American, we measure things by what we accomplish, by what we finish. That's not the way God measures things. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And when God sees that our hearts are in love with Him, when God sees that our hearts are wholeheartedly devoted to Him, He is moved to action. The context of His appeal is worship. And it's no surprise to me, and it shouldn't be to you, that the Apostle Paul begins this very lengthy, practical part of the book with personal worship and devotion. That's the context of his appeal. Notice the ground of his appeal. He appeals on the basis of the mercies 
of God. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners and giving his son to die for us and justifying us freely by faith and sending us his life-giving spirit. That's why over and over and over again in this book of Romans, salvation is postured as inextricably bound with God's mercy. For example, Romans 9.16, salvation depends, quote, not on man's desire or effort, but on God who has mercy. Romans 9.23, God's purpose is, quote, to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. Romans 11.30, as obedient Gentiles have now received mercy, so too a disobedient Israel will now receive mercy. And the verse that we studied last time, for God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he might show mercy to all of them. It's in view of God's mercy that Paul issues his ethical appeal. He knows, especially from his own experience, that there is no greater incentive to holy living than a contemplation of God's mercy. If you don't do that, you ought to. Take the time to meditate on the fact that God is not obligated to show mercy to anyone, but he's shown mercy to you. You wouldn't be here this morning in this worship service if there weren't an element of God's mercy in your life. God's mercy leads to holy living. That is the ground of Paul's appeal. Now let's look at the substance of his appeal in this first verse. He says, Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul postures us as a bunch of priests who, in gratitude for God's mercy, offer or present our bodies as living sacrifices. And these are described as both holy and acceptable to God, which seem to be the moral equivalence of being physically unblemished or without defects and a fragrant aroma. Such an offering is spiritual service of worship. It's interesting, the word spiritual there is translated logos, which could mean reasonable or rational. We're living in a day when spiritual things are considered neither reasonable nor rational. But they are. They are. Because that's the way God designed it. What, however, is this living sacrifice, this rational, spiritual worship? It is the presentation of our bodies to God. Now, this blunt reference to our bodies was calculated to shock some of Paul's Greek readers. You know, this was a time period of platonic thought. And the way that that thought went was that the mind was good, that is, reason was good, but there was no place for the body. There was a slogan, Soma Sima Estin, the body is a tomb in which the human spirit was imprisoned and from which they longed for its escape. They would have regarded the body as an embarrassing encumbrance. And that's the way a lot of people lived in this time period. It didn't matter what you did with your body. All that mattered was that you believed correctly. You had the right opinions. 
And you can see the mess that that would lead to. If it doesn't matter what I do with my body, then I can live with all kinds of immorality. I can expose myself to every kind of sinful behavior there is because it just doesn't matter. And we have a whole world living like that today. Still, some Christians feel self-conscious about their bodies. You know, even in the evangelical church, we say, give your heart to Christ. You don't really hear, give your body to Jesus. Even some commentators, apparently disconcerted by Paul's earthly language, suggest as an alternative, offer your very selves to God. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul is clear that the presentation of our bodies is our spiritual act of worship. It is a significant Christian paradox. No worship is pleasing to God, which is purely inward, abstract, and mystical. It must express itself in concrete acts of service our bodies perform. Similarly, authentic Christian discipleship will include both the negative mortification of the body's misdeeds, which we read about in Romans 8.13, and the positive presentation of our members to God. Paul made it plain in his exposure of human depravity in chapter 3. It reveals itself through our bodies. There's no way to really gauge sin without the body. It's with the body where our tongues practice deceit, our lips spread poison, our mouths which are full of cursing and bitterness, our feet which are swift to shed blood, and eyes which look away from God. We demonstrate our sin with our bodies. Conversely, Christian sanctification shows itself in the deeds of the body. So we are to offer the different parts of our bodies not to sin as instrument of wickedness, but to God as instruments of righteousness. Then our feet will walk in paths and our lips will speak the truth and spread the gospel. Our tongues will bring healing and our hands will lift up those who have fallen and perform many other mundane tasks as well, like cooking and cleaning and typing and mending and helping others. See, this is very personal. Paul is saying, as we begin this very practical session, I want you to give your bodies to the Lord. The body is important. The body is important. God made your body. And we're living in a time period now where people would just as soon discard the body or redefine their bodies to say I'm either male or female, I'm what I want to be, I'm discarding all of these categories. No, God gave you a body. And it's a glorious body. It's a sinful body, but it's going to be redeemed and restored. No wonder Paul said, give your bodies to God. In other words, it's very, very personal. When we come to God, and it's another way of saying, give your all to me, don't hold anything back. Nothing more personal to you than your, your body. That's why Paul told uh, Christian husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. No one ever hated his own flesh. He takes care of it. Well, Paul is saying to us, give your body to the Lord. In other words, when you come to him, don't hold anything back. Don't play games with God. If he puts a finger on something in your life, yield it up. Submit to him. 
And you'll find a great, great sense of interaction and intimacy with the Lord. It's so important. I was reading in Hebrews 10 the other day where the Lord Jesus as the coming Messiah is pictured by the psalmist in Psalm 40. And in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, I appeared before you and sacrifices you did not desire, but a body you have made for me. And so the Lord Jesus Christ himself assumed a human body. Why? Because that's what was necessary to do the personal work of salvation. He had to assume human flesh in order to come and live and be tempted and die and rise again from the bed so that you and I would have our sins atoned for. Jesus assumed a human body. And what Paul is saying here now at the outset of living out your Christian life, you bring your whole self, your body and soul, to the Lord Jesus in full disclosure. Say, Lord, I need your grace and mercy. I want to worship you all the days of my life. I want to see the reality of you in my life. I don't want to practice a dead religion. I don't want a form of godliness without power. I want you to have all of me. And I don't want to hold back. And when I find out that there's part of me that seems to be recoiling from you, help me to confess that immediately and keep on moving into the light closer and closer to you. It's like God told Abraham, walk before me face to face and live. That is how we live the Christian life. And that's where the power comes from and the joy and the sense of contentment when we yield ourselves to him faithfully and fully. Well, the Apostle Paul says, I'm appealing to you, Romans, and all other Christians, give yourself to personal worship and wholehearted devotion to Jesus and watch what he does in and through your life. Now, there's a second appeal here in verse 2, an appeal to transformation and discovery of the will of God. This is Paul's version of the call to nonconformity and holiness addressed to the people of God throughout Scripture. You know, we see that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Love not the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What does he mean by the world there? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. They're not from the Father, they're from the world. And those are the very things that brought about the downfall of Adam and Eve. Whenever we start looking at something in the created order, uh, over and above looking at the God who created those things, we get in trouble. In our flesh, because of its sin, the sin nature that still resides in us, we have to watch ourselves at that point because we're prone to do evil and often slothful and good. And so we live in a world where there are two value systems. One belongs to God and one belongs to Satan, basically. One is of the city of God, another is of the city of man. And they're incompatible, even in direct collision with each other. Whether we're talking about the purpose of life or the meaning of life or about how to measure greatness or how to respond to bad circumstances, about ambition, about sex, 
about gender, about honesty, about money, about community, about religion, and anything else. These two sets of standards diverge so completely that there is no possibility of compromise. And so Paul tells us all, don't be conformed to this world, this world system, this world's philosophies. That's why we read Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, verse 3. Where you lived, you shall not do as they do in the land of Cana, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. William Barclay said it this way, We are not to be like a chameleon which takes its color from its surroundings. I love J.B. Phillips' paraphrase. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. But let God remold your minds from within. You know, we human beings are uh, imitative by nature. We need a model to copy. Ultimately, there are only two. We can copy the world, literally this age, which is passing away, or we can run after and seek to copy God's will, which is good, pleasing, and perfect. More important for us, our understanding of transformation, which Paul urges, is the fact that metamorpho is the verb used by Matthew and Mark for the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, this is fascinating. The Bible is telling us through the Apostle Paul, you've got to be transformed. When you become a Christian, a principle of new life comes to live inside of you. The sinful nature, the old nature is still there. But now there begins a warfare between the flesh and the spirit. And a transformation is taking place. Because he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. And we are being transformed into the image of Jesus himself. And the same word is used of Jesus' transfiguration. I would have loved to have been there at Jesus' transfiguration. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Seeing the eternal Son of God with the curtain pulled back, with his glorious, heavenly, transcendent body, so bright that you could hardly look at it without going blind. Well, Paul is saying, guess what, believer? You've come to faith in Jesus Christ. If we could pull the curtain back and you could see who you are before the living God, it would shock you. You are a glorious being. Your body is a glorious thing given to you with specifics known especially to God for reasons known only to himself. And we are called to change. Now, this is not something that we bring about ourselves. Once again, go back to worship. When you're seeking God's face, whenever you are applying yourself to know Christ better, as the Apostle Paul said, whenever you're doing that, you're going to be growing by default into the image of Christ more and more. You're going to be transformed into his image. That's why when the people in John's Gospel said, what do we do to work the works of God? And Jesus said, believe on him whom he has sent. The key thing is not your effort or something that you might do for God. It's simply believing with all your heart 
by faith. 2 Corinthians 3.18 is beautiful. Paul says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. You see, it's not a matter of just being passive. A lot of Christians say, I don't want anything to do with the world. And they can be very boring people because they're not doing anything else. But what Paul is saying is, don't be conformed to the world, and here's how you do it. You pursue Christ, and you keep on pursuing him. And you look at his beauty and his glory and the fact that he is the eternal son of God, and you are made in his image, and you're going to come out sharing that same glory. You are a glorious creature. All of 2 Corinthians is challenging as it helps us to come to grips with this fact that even though there is sin remaining, I am being transformed into the image of his Son. He sees me as a glorious creature, and one day he will be finished with me. Is God working in your life? better question is, are you pursuing him? I didn't say doing something for him or even going to services or other Bible studies, are you down deep in your heart pursuing him with all of your might and exposing yourself to him, saying, Lord Jesus, this is for real. I want you to change me. I want to be transformed. I want to know what your will is for my life. You can know those things. You can know those things. We have to devote ourselves that way. And Paul is going to begin outlining how these two things together, a desire to worship the Lord and bring ourselves in close, intimate communion with him, and to put off the world to make sure that we shine as lights, as Christ does his work of transformation in us. And then Paul is going to take that person, us, and start applying it to our relationships and the way that we get along in society and how we live as lights around us for others to see the value and the beauty of the gospel. Jesus had a body prepared for him, and he gave that body, that life on Calvary in a close, intimate relationship with the Father. There was no other way. And now he calls us as the visible body of Christ to seek his face regularly, And to take up our cross and follow him that we might be transformed into the image of his son. And discover God's will for our lives along the way. I pray that that's true in your life. And if it's not, that you would submit your life to Christ today. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. or Recommit yourself to him in repentance and faith. And get back in the race walking with him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God Almighty, we thank you for these two powerful verses. Lord, it's all a mystery to us. We live in a world that always calls for action, calls for might and strength and power. You call for submission. You call us to yield to you in silence, where you empower us to live the Christian life. You call us, Lord, to nonconformity with the world, 
so that we might see the metamorphosis take place inside of us that took place inside of you, that we become sons and daughters of God, glorious creatures, demonstrating the Christ who lives inside of us. Lord, these are heavy realities, and I pray that you would help us to reflect on them all this week as we continue our study in this book and as we seek to live our lives in a manner that is pleasing in your sight. Lord, bless us as we seek to negotiate these truths and to become more thorough students of your word and more thorough disciples of Jesus. We make our prayer in his precious name. Amen. Let's take